are back um, after a hiatus. Dave, I was in Costa Rica, um, far from podcasting, but uh, the 19th century was not far from my mind. I was rereading Eduardo Galeano's um, Open Veins of Latin America. Oh, what a title. Yeah, so he talks about a whole bunch of coups <clears throat> against different um, Latin American leaders in the 19th century that were overthrown variously to, you know, get access to this mine or that mine or this banana field or that um, nitrates. Nitrates were big. Apparently, Chile's economy before copper was based on guano. And then um, until this German, some German created the Haber-Bosch process for extracting nitrates directly from the air using uh, uh, natural gas. But you still get phosphates from guano, don't you? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. But there's a, there's um, that process, that chemical process basically displaced the uh, much of the Chilean industry, which then promptly moved into copper. Okay. Which is another interesting thing about like the whole way colonialism works, like it's the commodities change, but the relationship never changes. So mm. it's not really that they're there to get copper or nitrates or gold or oil. It's that they're there and they're going to get what's there. Yeah. yeah. Or they'll bring in something you don't need, like cotton or some yes. other cash crop that we can use. Yes. Totally transform the economy. Yeah. But we're not actually going to Chile this episode. <laughs> no, we are not. We are going to stay in German, uh, German Africa. Uh, we did, uh, if you um, want to refresh yourselves, before we took our little break, we were, we were doing um, the Wahehe, um, who were fighting the Germans uh, in uh, East Africa. Uh, and now we're going to Southwest Africa, where, uh, you know, it's interesting that this is one of the places where the word genocide is sort of allowed um, to be used. Um, you know, they don't use it for what the British did in Benin, or even you don't really hear it so much for what uh, um, Leopold did in Congo, but you certainly do hear it for the Herero and the Nama in German Southwest Africa. And I thought maybe this was some kind of, uh, I don't know, some kind of singling out, I guess, of one colonial power over the rest. But, uh, <laughs> you know, we, we were going through the notes. Uh, you had you had made some summary notes about it. And then you were making fun of me this morning because I spent until 1 a.m. the past two <laughs> evenings uh, filling it in in great detail <clears throat> based on... Um, the book the kaiser's holocaust so we're ready to go for the herero the herero genocide today hmm. um so what can we say uh there's an interesting dynamic with the german southwest africa in the sense that the nama so we're going to talk about the nama probably in the next episode but they come up they come up in this one as well um they had a pretty remarkable african leader um Hendrik Witboy, who we'll, we'll talk about today. Um, but they were all apparently part Dutch. So well, most of them spoke both Khoisan and Dutch. They had guns. They had horses. These are people who were driven north 
by the waves of dis- of Africans that were displaced in turn by the Trek Boers, who we talked about in our South Africa episodes. Uh, they were Christianized. And uh, there's a whole, you know, the settlements around watering holes. There's a whole dynamic with which happened in the mid 19th century. We talked about with our Canada episodes where the wildlife of the plains are kind of progressively eliminated for one commodity or another buffalo in North America, elephants and rhinoceros uh, in this part of Africa hunted to extinction by the for the global market in hides and ivory. And then um other two two other familiar tricks is alcohol, uh, which is brought in copious uh, quantities by the Europeans for purposes of consumption by native people, and also debt. Um, they use debt to get you know various people to pay for the alcohol, and then uh, when they when it comes time to pay the debt back, they will t- the Europeans will take the land um, in, in little bits at a time. The big chunks of land remained in native hands which is what ultimately causes these wars to happen mm-hmm. also so there you know there's a cowboys horses uh cattle um guns um thing going on which also i think the germans um you know this is another reason we talked about germans being really into u.s wild west pop culture and pulp novels but there are some dynamics that are common to both in terms of the way the political economy works and so on. Yeah, as we do this, I have a you know one of my history magazines open with a picture of uh, a Herrero chief and uh, about a dozen of his men. It's black and white, obviously, but I look at this picture. They're wearing slouch hats, yeah, neckerchiefs, shirts, jackets, trousers, and and boots. You know, except for the fact that they were black, it looks like a like a group photo of cowboys. Yeah, yeah. from I don't know uh, Wyoming or Oklahoma or something <laughs> in 1900. Yeah, I mean, there's no way that if you encounter these people that you could portray them as you know savages or right. cannibals or you know human sacrifice. The right, it just doesn't fit. And boy, did they try to make it fit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So N- Namibia was one of the less visited stretches of African coastline. Apparently, the Portuguese landed in 1486, but there was really no uh, long-term European settlement, just limited and, and very temporary you know, trading posts sort of thing, mostly because there are no great harbors. So imperialism comes to Namibia relatively late. Uh, A small mission from the London Missionary Society in 1805, not much success. Um, In 1840, they transferred all of their activities to the German Rhenish Missionary Society, so from the Rhineland. And a couple of the early missionaries who arrived were Franz Heinrich Kleinschmidt, in 1842, and Karl Hugo Hahn, and they started founding churches throughout the territory. And they are supposed to have had an impact initially, mostly on culture and dress, and only later on on politics. And at the same time, there were a few merchants and farmers establishing outposts, but 
very little activity until 1882. And this is when a German merchant, uh, Adolf Luderitz from Bremen, uh, asked Chancellor Bismarck for protection for a station that he wanted to build in Southwest Africa. Yeah, and he sends an agent named Vogelsang. Uh, and Vogelsang uh, shows up at Angra Pequena, um, which is one of these coastal, I don't know, villages. It's not much of anything, but it's a place <laughs> that they call uh, Angra Pequena at the time. I guess it later becomes uh, Windhoek? Does it? Um, anyway. Um, or Lu- it becomes Luder. I think it becomes Luderitz. I think that's what right. it's called at least for a while. Um, and there's one other white guy there. There's an English trader named David Radford, and what he does is hunts cat sharks and sells cat shark liver oil, and uh, that's his. That's how he makes his living. So there's enough. Uh, there's enough going on economically to support one white guy <laughs> selling cat shark liver oil. <laughs> So Vogelsang uh, is pretty encouraged by this. He sets up a hut right beside Radford's. It's it was a prefabricated uh, little house that he had brought on the boat with him. Uh, then he goes and starts making a deal. So he goes to the Nama. Um, one of their each Nama group is uh, called you know like the Witboy Nama or the Bethany Nama. So he goes to the Bethany Nama's chief uh, Joseph Fredericks. Um, he gets uh, he gives Fredericks uh, 200 rifles and 100 pounds sterling uh, and Fredericks uh, signs away Angra Pequena um, renaming it Luderitz slash Fort Vogelsang. <laughs> um, so humble beginning. <laughs> yeah, humble beginning. It's not a foot in the door. It looks more like a toenail in the door. <laughs> so in 1883, Ber- uh, Luderitz goes to Berlin to see Bismarck again. Uh, to ask for protection for this new trading post. And Bismarck is not having it. He says, listen, sovereignty over this country now lies either with the uh, N-word, black prince concerned, or with Luderitz himself, but not with the Reich. As long as I am chancellor, we shall not pursue a colonial policy. That's 1883. Right. By 1884, we have the, the... Berlin Conference of Berlin in a slightly different <laughs> attitude, yeah. Yeah, but in 1883, is pretty definitive. But Vogelsang goes back to Fredericks, and he makes another deal with Fredericks. And here's this is a good one. He, they invent a thing called geographical miles, Dave. So he gets um, Fredericks to sign 20 geographical miles on either, in from the coast or whatever. And uh, apparently a geographical mile is five times the size of an English mile. Oh, nice. <laughs> And uh, Luderitz writes explicitly to Vogelsang to let Joseph Fredericks believe for the time being that the reference is to 20 English miles. So not sure how well that would hold up in a, <laughs> in a court, but that's pretty indicative of the kinds of deals they're making. Um, in fact, uh, it's so out- this treaty is so outrageous that it, they German, I guess, government sends... Uh, investigator to investigate this treaty but the investigator never gives his report because he dies on his way back to germany which goes a murder mystery plot in there for sure um then uh literally we're we're now into scramble territory as admiral gustav nachtigall 
uh, German admiral starts going around the coast trying to get the German flag raised on different uh, colonies. So he gets to Senegal. He's very excited, but the French flag is already flying there. He continues on to Togo, Cameroon, Dula, and he's headed to Angra Pequena too, but Bismarck actually wants uh, it even faster. He finally has decided he wants this, so he sends two faster ships uh, to Angra Pequena slash Luteritz to, uh, to plant the flag. Yeah, and as you say, the dates are significant. Uh, B- Bismarck is saying, no, 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 and then the Conference of Berlin, okay, maybe, okay, yeah. <laughs> so now the, the German flag will be raised in Southwest Africa, August 7th, 1884. And uh, during the rest of the Conference of Berlin, these claims will be confirmed. Yeah, so by the end of 1884, almost 1 million square miles of Africa. So the thing I always remember is Ontario, the province that where we live um, in Canada, which is a huge province if you look on a map, is 1 million square kilometers. So this is 1 million square miles. Um, I think the whole country of the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, is 2 million square kilometers, which I think would be comparable to this. So by the end of 1884, one million square miles of Africa is claimed by Germany, uh, as well as Samoa and New Guinea, which I think you're going to talk about in a future episode. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is actually five times the size of Germany, this area claimed by, uh, by Germany. There are now 14 million Africans that are colonial subjects of Germany. Most of them have no idea that they, <laughs> they are German uh, colonial subjects now. Um, and also, fairly quickly, uh, Germans realized that Togo, neither Togo nor Cameroon are going to become settler colonies. And we talked about the German kind of popular level colonial fever um, in the last episode. And uh, so as far as kind of satisfying this colonial fever, it's, it's going to fall to Southwest West Africa if it's going to happen at all. Yeah. Yeah. So, sorry, unlike some of uh, Carl Peter's early ventures in the in the East, which seems to have been, you know, like one or one or two people uh, and off they go. The German Colonial Society for Southwest Africa. Gosh, their names are long. Deutsche Colonial Gesellschaft für Südwestafrika was founded with the support of German bankers. Bleichroder, if you've ever heard that name before. Uh, Adolf von Hansemann, industrial, uh, industrialists like Count Guido Henkel von Donnersmark, and politicians like Frankfurt Mayor von Mikkel, Johannes von Mikkel. So the German Colonial Society, or the DKGSWA, uh, was granted monopoly rights to exploit any minerals, and they're following Bismarck's policy to the letter. It's private money that's going to be used to develop the colonies. Bismarck doesn't want to spend public funds. So they they bought out Luteritz's enterprises, which were all failing anyway, and then they bought the land and mineral rights. And, and Luteritz was, I guess he went off looking for a new score. So he was on an expedition to the mouth of the Orange River and he, he drowned. Which is kind of sad because, you know, if you're, if you're a colonialist rooting for colonial fortunes because there were so many diamonds just under his the nose of his geologist 
yeah. and geographers. They were running around all over the place. Yeah, it wasn't over. until uh, 1908 that the diamonds were discovered. <laughs> and then they also found gold, copper, platinum. Uh, yeah, diamonds were, were the biggest major investment. Yeah, yeah he uh, missed. He missed, that's for sure. So Bismarck uh, figures the company model isn't going to work. It's kind of run its course. So he's ha- he's got to appoint an imperial commissioner. I've heard the name of this commissioner. Yeah, he picked an interesting guy, <laughs> Heinrich Ernst Göring. Göring. If you hmm. recognize the name, yes, it's Hermann Göring's father. So what does he have going for him? First of all, he's from the German-Dutch border, so he speaks Dutch which is pretty useful in that part of Africa because of the mm-hmm. Boers, right? He's also lawyer, like legally inclined. So he's all about like law and treaties. So he shows up with a staff of two men. Um, he's decided that the natives are easily impressed by appearance. So he makes sure to to uh, change. They change into their full dress uniform to well, meet. That's the... a trait that runs in the family. <laughs> to, uh, to meet the Herero chief. Uh, so, so they go, uh, you know, they call on the Herero chief to jam, jam, jamwaha, to, to T-J-A-M-U-A-H-A, to, to jamwaha, jamwaha. Uh, and jamwaha basically says, yeah, uh, not, not, not a good time. Can you please wait for me at the mission station? Um, the book that I'm reading, the Kaiser's Holocaust says, uh, jamwaha had more pressing concerns than the arrival of three overdressed German officials. <laughs> Because um, and the issue is a conflict with the Witboy Nama and their r- remarkable leader Henrik Witboy, um, and they actually are trying to have a dialogue and figure out what to do about a la- land conflict that they have. And Jamwaha kind of ambushes Witboy, but Witboy uh, turns the tables on him in the battle, uh, and Jamwaha actually loses. So there's some hard feelings at that point, and Witboy is like, "What are you doing, man?" <laughs> and he writes him a set of set of letters, basically saying that, like, "What have you done? Why, you know, why are you trying to fight me when we have this bigger problem?" Because Witboy is very aware of what's going on with colonialism. He knows about the conference, uh, the Berlin Conference. Um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so uh, Jamwaha signs up with Goering for protection and Goering knows full well he's not going to be able to protect anybody from anything but that's not really uh, what he is there to do uh, anyway a little bit more about Henrik Witboy who's like on all the Namibian currency and like he's a na- he's considered a national hero still um, he's the dominant force among all the Nama his own uh, group is called the Witboy Nama he's already 55 years old in 1885 And here's a long quote from the book, The Kaiser's Holocaust. He was well aware of events outside Africa and fully understood that the powers of Europe were seeking access to the continent and its people. Um, He was Christian. Uh, He knew the Bible in Dutch. He apparently quoted the Bible voluminously in in Dutch uh, whenever he was trying to make a point. Uh, He did not trust missionaries, though. Um, He saw them as simply agents of colonialism. Uh, and he left, unlike a lot of uh, African leaders that we've been talking about, he actually left a lot of written work, letters to the press, correspondence. Um, same with the Herero leader. We're going to talk about Samuel Maharero. Um, and Kaiser's Holocaust says uh, the, their records were a rare glimpse of colonialism and colonial violence through African eyes. 
I wonder what his sources were, because this is really rare that he would be, you know, well-informed. Yeah, I think he must have had some missionary. Like, there's always some missionary that's unreliable from the European perspective. (laughs) Okay, okay. There must have been some white people hanging around, uh, and he read he read the newspapers. I, I and there were out, probably also like South African boars and stuff, right? Possible, yeah. Um, so Goering writes to Whitboy. He says, "I have always heard and read too that you are a reasonable man." Oh man, whenever you <laughs> whenever you see a letter that opens with that. It's, not going to be good. Um, so act reasonably now. Realize that the best course is to return home and live in peace with your old father and your tribe. To recapitulate, the German government cannot permit chieftains who have placed themselves under German protection to support your enterprise of plunging a protected chiefdom into war. I trust you will attend to my words. Um, Whitboy does not attend to his words. <laughs> he does not bother to reply. <laughs> He just ignores the letter, and so Goring has to send his staffer to go back and ask for a meeting, at which point Whitboy does reply. He says, I gather that you want to negotiate peace, you who call yourself a representative. How shall I respond? You are someone else's representative, and I am a free and autonomous man answering to none but God. So I have nothing further to say to you. A representative has less power than an autonomous man, so I see no need to follow your summons at this point. (laughs) Um, And then because uh, Jamwaha is nominally under German protection and they're at war, uh, Whitboy proceeds to basically, you know, humiliate Jamwaha's fighters in a series of small battles and raid their cattle and and so on. So Goering... Um, his strategy is to try to make treaties with all the other smaller uh, tribes around Whitboy. Um, and he, he'll go and get a treaty, and then Whitboy will go and scupper the treaty <laughs> as soon as Goering's gone. So, for example, he go, Goering goes to Chief Manas, uh, and, and Whitboy goes and, and takes the flag from him. Uh, he, he writes to Goering, uh, I captured the flag, which you presented to Chief Manas. It is now in my keeping. I should like to know what to do with this flag. I ask because it is an alien thing to me. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> so while Goering is doing his rounds, trying to recruit chiefs into, I guess, a German alliance, uh, by 1886, the Germans also created the legal system for the colony. And it is familiar. It's a familiar pattern. It's a dual system: one set of laws for Europeans, different set of laws for natives. And relations between the German settlers and the uh, neighboring people they are getting progressively worse. Yeah, and one of the things that makes it worse is Goering, maybe, or someone like that around him, uh, in desperation, basically fakes a gold find. So they show up with some gold nuggets and say, ah, we found gold. Um, so a whole bunch of prospectors show up. And these prospectors, uh, you know, when Germany sends their prospectors, they're not sending their best. They're, you know, drunk and violent and abusive and rapists and so on. Um, and Goering himself, uh, you know, he just steps right in it as well. He builds an extension to his mission building over a Herero graveyard. 
um, he's trying to fight the Nama and he's abusing the Herero, right? So he, so Jamwaha finally in 1888, he's had enough. He summons Garing and says, this protection treaty is off. You can get the hell out of here. Um, and Goering, he's in a bit of a huff and he says, well, fine, then all the Germans are going to leave. And he issues a general evacuation order for all Germans to leave. Uh, and uh, everybody pretty much ignores it, <laughs> including Goering's own two assistants. <laughs> <laughs> so Goering himself leaves. Um, and the British, uh, I mean, the Germans basically can't, uh, they can't believe that the natives would would expel them themselves, you know, on their own volition. Um, so Bismarck blames the British. He says, we are finding ourselves up against England rather than the Herreros. Uh, but he also says there can be no question of applying force against the Herreros. So there's some kind of compromise with the men on the ground who are very like wanting to go and do something about the natives. So he sends them a tiny force and explicit orders to avoid conflict with Africans. And Goering himself goes off to become ambassador to Haiti. Wow. Which is a weird choice for yeah. this guy, but I guess he he's seen as some kind of specialist in how diplomacy to deal with <laughs> African people or something. Oh, uh, so before he leaves uh, in 1893, his wife Francesca gives birth to a to a strapping young boy uh, who they name Herman, and we'll probably hear more about Herman um, a couple of series from now. Yeah, interesting. Uh instructions from Bismarck. So I'm going to send you some troops. So in 1888, the first group of Schutztruppen, these are colonial protectorate troops, uh, they arrive and they're sent to protect uh, the military base the Germans are, are setting up. Yeah. You send force and then give strict orders to avoid conflict. <laughs> well, this is you, your. You uh, could have avoided conflict by not sending not. troops. <laughs> well, this is your um, this is your man on the spot thing, right? Because uh, in Kaiser's Holocaust, the authors basically argue that uh, that he that Bismarck is being outmaneuvered by the man on the spot, which in this case is a guy named Kurt von Francois. Which is an interesting German name, von Francois. He must be from like that part of the border part. He know? was uh, from Luxembourg, actually, oh, and okay. his family were French Huguenots. There you go. So they probably left under Louis the Fourteenth and uh, moved to Prussia. Big military family for generations. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Ver- von Francois shows up in 1889 with 21 soldiers, and he's got the new Mauser 88 rifle. He's got already got a career in Africa behind him. He's worked in Congo for Leopold as a slave trader and raider. Sorry, uh, abolitionist um, to abolish slave trade in Congo. Right. Um, force rec- forcibly recruiting porters and putting them in chains is not to be confused with slavery. Um, <laughs> apologies <laughs> to everyone <laughs> for the misimpression. Um, so in the forest of the Congo Basin, this is a quote from Kaiser's Holocaust, he had become a racial fanatic with unshakable views on how Africans should be treated. So when he shows up, he does not like what he sees. He sees Nama and Herero, cowboys, like you say, you know, riding around on their horses with their own cattle and their own livelihoods and you know walking upright among europeans so he writes um a letter 
or it might be in his diary, but he writes down, the Europeans here have failed to give the black man the right kind of treatment. They have made too many concessions, granting all the black man's wishes without bearing in mind that this is only interpreted as a sign of weakness. Um, so he, he uh, sets out to antagonize uh, the Africans. He puts a camp, he sets up a camp called Wilhelm's Fort, Kaiser Wilhelm being the king of Germany. Uh, and he starts attacking wagons. He just starts raiding, uh, you know, the peaceful commerce of of the area. Uh, his goal is basically to get in enough trouble that Bismarck has to send more troops. Um, he says, he, another thing he writes, uh, I think it's in a book that he publishes later about how to deal with Africans. He says, only serious, strong-minded, and domineering actions against foreign nations, as well as quick diplomacy and battle successes, could excite the support of the German people. Negotiations, deviation, delay, and deliberation were completely impossible and detested concepts. So he's doing these things, but he justifies them by basically appealing to German popular opinion. And, you know, to use our words, like, or my words, like colonial fever. Um, Bismarck does send more men. Uh, he sends 41 more men under the protection army, but ultimately he's on his way out. He's, uh, he's been removed from office shortly after uh, by Wilhelm II and replaced by Count Leo von Caprivi. Yeah. Jamwaha holds a council. His son, Samuel Maharero, he says we should just do it like we should get rid of these people now he advocates attacking wilhelm's fort um samuel sends a letter to von francois telling him to go home but again his father emphasizes the threat of the nama instead um he says uh you know the nama are a bigger threat so they invite francois to negotiate and then samuel signs with von francois in 1890 Francois, meanwhile, draws a lesson from this. He says nothing but relentless severity will lead to success. And then uh, the Herrero are kind of stuck for a good while um, in a long succession conflict when Jamwaha dies, and it takes a long time before Samuel eventually takes over. And during that conflict, while they're preoccupied with succession, uh, von Francois takes over the, the town of Windhoek and makes that uh, a kind of a German settler uh, capital. Yeah, yeah. The, again, the date is is significant for what's what's going on elsewhere. So in 1890, the colony is declared a German crown colony, and the first thing they do is send more troops. And the, the colony also uh, got bigger. So there was a, a deal, a little bit of uh, European trading. So if you remember from German East Africa. Uh, that all began with the, I guess, agreement, reluctant agreement of the Sultan of Zanzibar. But now the British are going to claim preeminence on Zanzibar. And the Germans will get uh, Tanganyika. But the deal gets bigger because they now add Heligoland. So Heligoland is a small island uh, in the North Sea. It's basically, uh, if you look at the angle between, you know, Denmark and the Netherlands, it's the exit of the Kiel Canal, which has just been finished. So the Germans can now sail their warships 
basically across the bottom of, of Denmark, and they can now access the North Sea that way. But that island is occupied by the British. So if they were to turn it into a massive you know, naval fortress, it would be too close to the exit of the Kiel Canal. So Germany wants it, and the English are willing to trade it in return for recognition of British authority over Zanzibar. Now, Zanzibar is pretty wealthy, and that's going to be a big deal. So Germany's going to get something else uh, added on, and they're going to get what's called the Caprivi Strip, named after Bismarck's successor. So if you look at a map of Namibia, it's that narrow strip of land in the north. So this will give German Southwest Africa access to the Zambezi River. So I guess they're thinking about, you know, future prospects. This is an important little piece. Now, this deal that goes through, the Heligoland-Zanzibar Treaty, was actually negotiated by Bismarck. Caprivi just finished it off. And yet, the way that Bismarck uh, phrased the whole thing made it look like a bad deal, even though he's the one who set it up, right? So the wording he used was that Germany had swapped an African empire for tiny Heligoland. Bismarck called it uh, trading trousers for a button. Right. So he's trying to make it appealing to the British. He's trying to say, look, look what I'm giving you. You guys are getting a great deal. You guys here. are getting the deal of the century. But meanwhile, uh, yeah. Yeah. So Caprivi is going to bear the onus for this deal, which, you know, the, the imperialist crew are going to jump on Bismarck's words and say, we got ripped off. This is treason against German interests. And it will lead Carl Peters, our friend Carl, and Alfred Hugenberg to appeal for the foundation of a pan-German league, the Alldeutscher Verband. And that happens in 1891. Uh, Carl Peters should have been hanged by now. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. What's interesting, though, is Alfred Hugenberg is a notable figure that we're going to run into later. Oh, this is not one whose name I recognized. 1920s, conservative politician. Oh, okay. Yeah. So in 1892, the Southwest Africa Company Limited was established by German, British, and uh, the Cape Colony government. And with uh, help from financiers, raised the capital that they needed to enlarge the mineral exploitation. Specifically, they were going for the copper deposits in Damaraland. They also set up a cordon fence, a veterinary cordon fence in 1896 to control rinderpest, which was running rampant through the area. Yeah, I've got a lot to say about rinderpest uh, in in this episode. So they're, they're trying to restrict the movement of population and livestock. And later on, this was known as the red line. And it became a, a political boundary. So what started as a, I guess, a partial quarantine measure turns into a political boundary. The, the police, German police protection was concentrated south of that line. And the northern areas were controlled more indirectly through the, you know, the traditional chiefs and leaders. 
So that's going to lead to very different outcomes politically and economically between, for example, the northern Ovambo people compared to the Herero, who were more centrally located. So as you mentioned before, German settlers are not attracted to Togo and Cameroon. Uh, too hot, too sweltering, too much uh, danger of disease. But German Southwest Africa is more appealing, and this is the only one where Germans settled in large numbers. So they're interested in the diamonds, the copper mines, but also farming. So by 1902, the colony had 200,000 Europeans. Oh, sorry, the col sorry, the, the colony had 200,000 inhabitants. Only 2,500 or so were recorded as German, 1,300 Afrikaners, and 452 British. But by the outbreak of the First World War, 9,000 more Germans had arrived. So still not, still not the numbers, <laughs> still not like the kind of numbers that are going to New York, for example. But, oh gosh, uh, <laughs> no, or or South Africa. But yeah. you know, think of how recent this this colony, how recently this colony began. Right. So by that time, there were probably around eighty thousand Herero, uh, sixty thousand Ovambo, uh, and ten thousand Nama. Mm -hmm. So you can see why the Nama, outnumbered by the Herero, would be you know, tempted to ask for German protection or yeah. to agree to accept German protection. Especially, yeah, especially once Hendrik Wittboy basically, you know, gives up almost. So let uh, he, uh, back to him. So Hendrik Wittboy of the Nama, he, he knows, like we said, about the dangers of the Germans, the Berlin Conference, and he doesn't want to fight the Herero. Um, he knows that the Germans are a bigger threat, and I, like I mentioned, he writes um, he writes letters to Jamwaha of the Herero, tr trying to get him to undo the treaty with the Germans, which you know he he eventually did, but then they signed again. But he uh, he writes to to Jamwaha: "This dry land is known by two names only: Herero land and Nama land. Herero land be belongs to the Herero nations and is an autonomous realm, and Nama land belongs to all the Nama nations. And these two are autonomous realms, just as it is with the white man's countries, Germany, England, and so on. Do you realize what you have done, and for whom you did what you have done, my dear captain? You will come to rue it bitterly." you will eternally regret that you have handed your land and your rights as a ruler to the white men. This war between us is not nearly as heavy a burden as you seem to have thought when you did this momentous thing. I mean, wow. <laughs> I wish, I wish this guy could have like written letters to all the, <laughs> all the Africans that made these kinds of deals, um, around this time. But, um, they are actually do have a series of negotiations. They're in kind of a slow process of negotiation by 1892. Um, when von Francois goes to visit Henrik uh, at their citadel, Hornkranz uh, citadel, where Henrik is kind of like waiting with his people. Um, he offers them protection. Whitboy replies, what are we being protected against? From what danger or difficulty or suffering can one chief be protected by another? Um, and he starts writing to the British um, 
seeing what they can offer him, uh, he writes to the British agent, uh, Cleverly is the guy's name. <laughs> cool name for a colonial. Um, so the Germans, meanwhile, under Francois, uh, send another 250 soldiers, and Henrik Witboy's people are the target. Um, on April 12th, 1893, uh, von Francois takes 200 of these men to the Horncrans Citadel at night. He tells them that they're going on a, a exercise, but then when they get to the foothills of the uh, mountain, uh, he's he, he says, okay, guys, get ready. The object of this mission is to destroy the tribe of the Witboys. Um, and Kaiser... Um, Kaiser's Holocaust, the book says, knowing that he stood little chance against the Witboy in open battle, von Francois had decided to surround the tribe as they slept and exterminate them. So, uh, you know, not exactly the heroic, uh, you know, man, heroic colonial man doing heroic things. Yeah, it wouldn't make a good painting for in the mythology, right? Yeah. So I have a I have some horrific details that I'll read um, just to give you a flavor from the Kaiser's Holocaust. Leaving their horses behind, the Germans stealthily climbed the steep slopes overlooking Horncrans. One by one, the soldiers took up their positions on the plain below. The Witboy people were asleep in their huts. It was just before dawn. Smoke was rising from the dying fires, and the only sounds were unruly horses and the stirring of cattle in the distant enclosure. As the sun began to rise, von Francois got to his feet and gave the signal. A second later, 200 rifles fired simultaneously. The thunder of the volley gave way to the discordant metallic clanking of reloading, followed by re-aiming and firing. Over the next 30 minutes, more than 16,000 rounds of ammunition were fired. In the settlement below, hundreds burst from their homes and ran in search of cover. Uh, children screamed hysterically. The cries of the wounded were audible above the thunder of the rifles. Bodies lay in the sand. The injured clutched at gaping wounds. The few Witboy fighters who managed to load their guns began to return fire, but to little effect. Bullets poured down among them, uh, killing indiscriminately. Henrik Witboy, shocked and confused, still managed to give an order. He commanded the Witboy men to run towards the dry river on the far side of the valley, hoping that the Germans would give chase and leave the women and children unharmed. That's pretty, pretty quick thinking. This is why people respect Henrik Witboy, right? As Henrik was ushered away, he might have caught sight of his 12-year-old son. The boy who had spent his short life coping with a partial paralysis had been shot while trying to escape. Wounded, he crawled towards the dry riverbed where a German soldier killed him with a shot to the head. Up at the hills, above the dust and screaming, von Francois, saber in hand, gave a second order and his men began to fumble for their bayonets. Seconds later, they were charging down the slopes into Horncrans, firing as they went. To the horror of the Witboy, rather than chasing the men to the riverbed, they began to butcher the women, children, and the elderly. Then they uh, looted the camp, including the church. They carefully listed the treasure captured for Germany and the Kaiser. 212 stirrups, 74 horseshoes, 12 coffee pots, 12 coffee grinders, 122 pieces of cutlery, 44 bits and bridles, 3 violins, and a pair of opera glasses. Von Francois' men also seized 80 Witboy women. They were brought to the new German fortress in Windhoek and distributed among the troops as house slaves. There's no record of their ultimate fate or how they suffered, but von Francois argued that their capture and abuse was an appropriate form of punishment. 
one of the female captives, Witboy's daughter, defiantly told her captors to hasten back to the big ships in which you came, for my father will return soon to drive all the white men from this land. <laughs> so, badass father and a badass daughter. Um, they they had killed 88 people. Um, they'd lost one German soldier, I, maybe to friendly fire, or maybe they just a uh, lucky shot from the Witboy side. Um, and von Francois writes home, any further resistance on the part of the Wit Boys is out of the question. Um, so Henrik Witboy takes his people to the Homas Mountains. Uh, he writes to the other Nama chiefs, uh, basically to get ready for war. And he writes again to the British magistrate in Walvis Bay descri- describing what happened. He says, please let these miserable and frightful events be quickly known to all the great people in England and Germany. I cannot think that such a war as the Germans have now made is done by such a mighty and civilized people. Is it a straightforward or usual way of making war? So he kind of like naively asks this, right? Um, I think it's fake naive naivete, but... You know, it's a it's in a letter. So cleverly says, no, no, I, I cannot understand how there could have been a killing of women and children such as you tell me of. European nations do not make war in that way. Oh, boy. Except when they do. But the British do make a lot of it in the press. And eventually some uh, of these stories actually make it into the German uh, papers, too. Interesting instincts by uh, Whitboy. Yeah. You know, to go the, the, you know, make it public knowledge angle. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, it's, it is very interesting. It was very ahead of his time. Um, so, you know, he gets himself reorganized and, and he's going to war. So Henrik goes to war. They've got 300 men and they start raiding. Um, and they're raiding, they're taunting, and they're fighting back. Um, here's a quote from the book, uh, Kaiser's Holocaust. Beyond the rage Beyond the range of German rifles, they galloped their horses back and forth and waved their hats in full view, mocking their enemy's ability to give chase. They cut supply lines. They raid convoys. Um, (laughs) German businessmen are so uh, aware that the von Francois can't protect them that they actually pay protection money to um, (laughs) Henrik Whitboy. Wow. Yeah. so for so for seven months, uh, this Henrik Woodboy keeps this up. So he's trying to make Francois see reason. Um, Francois lies and says things are going great. He writes home saying, "No, no, we've got them. They, you know, we the Horncrans raid was successful. They're co- totally broken." Um, and finally, uh, it, the news gets back to Germany. Um, one of the parliamentarians in the Reichstag says. Uh, Major Francois is not the right man in the right place and must be replaced by someone else. Henrik Witboy is the real master of the country and Francois is no match for him. So Francois actually writes to Caprivi about a whole new set of plans for attacking uh, (laughs) basically everybody (laughs) uh, in all directions. And Caprivi kind of freaks out and says, this guy's got it. This guy's done. So he... Uh, fires him and sends uh, a new guy, Theodore Lutwein. So Theodore Lutwein is an interesting case because he's he's sort of like, this is what the conscience, <laughs> this is what the German colonial conscience looks like. Um, he's a real scholar of British colonialism. He's a real admirer of that method, divide and rule, you know, s- salami slicing or something like call it. One little, 
one little theft at a time. Don't try to swallow it all at once. Okay. Um, but you know, uh, when he sh- the first thing he does is show up and capture one of the chiefs of the Hawas Nama, uh, conducts a sham trial and executes him, and then installs a puppet ruler. So he's not like a he's not like a lover of African native people or anything. Sounds like uh, Carl Peters. Yeah, <laughs> but but you'll see that he's you know he he's always he's the guy you'll see throughout the rest of the episode he's the guy who's writing back saying no 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 we don't want to exterminate them all it's bad for business yeah so, so he makes a treaty with the Hawa which yeah. forbids them from waging war or stealing cattle their weapons are confiscated and they're to be held until the tribe displays quiet behavior the Germans bought their horses. I don't know if the Hawa had much choice. So they don't have a culture of uh, raising cattle. And without the possibility of hunting and raiding, you know, they, they have n- basically no means of surviving economically. So the, the, the whole tribe just suddenly and drastically, you know, died out as a, as a cohesive social unit. The, the members of the tribe were scattered into uh, prisoner of war camps and forced labor camps, and, and they lost their entire territory. Yeah, so that's Ludwig. I guess uh, that approach is a little bit more successful than von Francois. He goes on to the Fransman Nama. He forces their chief to sign, similar kind of treaty. Um, and then he starts uh, a correspondence with Henrik Whitboy, and this is... Uh, very interesting uh, letters that they write back and forth. On April 9th, 1894, Lutwin writes to Whitboy. He says, Developing events have brought about, passive voicing, that His Majesty the German Emperor is now paramount sovereign of Namaqualand, and there is nothing to be done about it. All other captains of the country have resigned themselves to it, and you are the only one who has refused and must fight us to destruction. Should I succeed in killing you and all your men, the war would be at an end. But should you succeed in killing me and all my men, the war would be by no means at an end. For the Emperor of Germany would, from his vast army, send double or triple the number of men and many more field guns, and you would have to start over. His Majesty the German Emperor has sent me with specific orders to carry the war to your destruction unless you surrender. I do not know you and have no personal enmity against you at all, but shall, of course, carry out my orders and fight you to the death. So Whitboy replies, I have never met the emperor (laughs) and cannot have offended him by word or deed. God has given us different realms on earth, and through that I know and believe that it is neither a sin nor a crime for me to want to remain the independent chief of my country and people. If you want to kill me for this without any fault of mine, there is no harm done, nor is it a disgrace. I shall die honestly for that which is my own. Um, Lutwin replies basically again with this appeal to German public opinion, as if Whitboy is supposed to care. (laughs) He says in May 1894, I'm sorry, I can't let you keep your autonomy. If you do, I should be blamed not only by my lord, the German emperor, but by all the German people. You are more spoken about in Germany than you suppose. Incidentally, all our letters are forwarded to Berlin and also communicated to my men. So this goes on all summer. uh, And in August, at the end of August, um, August 27th, 1894, Lutwin gets reinforcements from Germany and attacks. They actually admit in their own private 
correspondence that they uh, are better, the Witboy are better fighters than them. Uh, the Germans have artillery, though. So the rifle uh, rifles are awash. They both have basically the same rifles. The Witboy are better. They're better on the terrain. They know the terrain better. Uh, they're you know tougher, hardier, etc. Um, but um, the Germans have artillery. So there's a real slog, a 13-day battle in the Knockluft Mountains, and the Witboy set ambush after ambush. Uh, so the Germans basically back off and just do an artillery um, artillery fight. Um, so finally, a uh, quote from the book, uh, having fought against the Germans for a year and a half and with his people on the verge of starvation, Henrik Witboy finally accepted German offers of a peace treaty on the 9th of September after an unrelenting artillery barrage. So the deal is this. He has to settle his people in Gibeon. There's a German garrison commander there. He gets a pension of 2,000 marks. They get to retain their land and their herds. Um, so it's a deal that the settlers really don't like. The Kaiser really doesn't like. Um, but there's very little they can do about it because there aren't that many settlers. Um, so that's the deal that Witboy takes. So he fights them to, uh, you know this kind of uh, as good of a deal, I guess, as he could get in 1894, but it's pretty momentous. And now uh, shall we take a diversion, um, Dave, and talk a little bit about the Berlin colonial show of 1896? Oh boy. <laughs> so the Germans uh, make a distinction between the nature Volk, people in a natural state and the Volker Schauen. Oh, no, at the Volkerschauen. So they're, they're nat natural people and cultural people. So cultured people are people that, are, you know, have rational thinking and so on. And then there's nat naturvolk, which is basically like animals. So they'll the, we've mentioned before that kind of human zoos are very popular, um, where they take bring people from Africa and the islands and, um, you know, native people from the Americas and display them in their sort of natural environment. Um, Carl Hagenbeck, who's known apparently as the father of the zoo, um, in, uh, you know, always included people uh, as part of the design of the zoo. So in summer 1896, there's a joint venture between the Colonial Department and the Colonial Society. It's patronized by the Prince von Hohenlohe, and they bring 100 colonial subjects to the Berlin Colonial Show. It's a human zoo at the heart of the German Empire. So they build authentic native villages in Berlin's Treptow Park. Uh, and the brochure says, we've transplanted a piece of natural savagery and raw culture to the center of a proud and glamorous metropolis with its refined morals and fashion-conscious people. Do you know, do you know Hagenbeck's uh, credentials for this job? <laughs> no, tell me. He was a German merchant who specialized in wild animals, yeah. and supplied many European zoos. And one of his customers was P.T. Barnum. Oh, circuses and zoos. zoos. Quite but, a business. I mean, the only point I can find in his favor is that he created the modern zoo with uh, enclosures without bars. Like yes. rather than just putting the animals in a cage, he tried to replicate their natural habitat. Right. So now we're just going to do this with people. <laughs> so Germany also wanted to, there's two sides to the coin, right? They want to show off uh, to Germans uh, what it's like in their colonies. 
but they also want to bring elites from their colonies to show how powerful and the grandeur of Germany, right? So they'd heard how the British brought Sechuayo of the Zulus. We've done an episode on Sechuayo, so if you want to go back to the South Africa series, uh, to the Woolwich Arsenal to, and to see the Royal Navy. So here's the paradox. The human zoo exhibit, uh, the people that are on display are actually the most westernized Africans <laughs> so here's a qu- amazing quote. Most had long been exposed to the missionaries, and some were devout Christians who wore European dress. Many of them had little to do with the indigenous cultures they were now expected to enact in Treptow Park. At least one group had to be shown how to construct the traditional huts they were to live in. Another, that included members of the dominant family from the Dula peoples of Cameroon, were utterly unwilling to perform any of the supposedly traditional ceremonies that the organizers assured them were essential aspects of their own culture. (laughs) (laughs) So the Herero and the Witboy Nama, they don't even get on board the ship to go to Germany before they get a formal contract. They're wearing European military uniforms, bandoliers, sidearms. Civilians are wearing suits. The women are wearing bodice dresses with puffed sleeves and fashionable floral patterns. (laughs) They send uh, the son of Samuel Maharero. He goes, Friedrich uh, Maharero. He's particularly well attired in a fashionable black felt blazer, crisp white shirt, and colorful silk bow tie. Like the other Herero, he was tall young, and strikingly handsome. Yet it was not merely the clothes of the Southwest Africans that shocked the organizers. The decision to recruit only from the local elites meant the exhibits were educated and accustomed to being treated with respect. Petrus Jod, the nephew of, I guess it might be Jod, J-O-D, the nephew of Henrik Whitboy, was a particularly profound challenge to German racial expectations. He was a school teacher who spoke eloquent high Dutch and carried a copy of the Bible at all times. When the Herero and Nama arrived in Berlin, officials demanded they abandon their Western clothes and dress in more genuine attire. They were especially disturbed by the fact that the Southwest Africans and many of the Cameroonian men wore trousers, which they believed would undermine the authenticity of the entire colonial show. When German ethnographers supplied them with authentic African clothes, they refused to wear them. The devout Petrus Yod argued that it would be against his Christian beliefs to wear what he called heathen clothing. As the spread of the Gospels was one of the supposed achievements of German colonialism, none of the organizers could come up with an effective counterargument. So Petrus and the others remained in neat Victorian suits, including the trousers. Similarly, the Herero kept their hats and Boer-style military uniforms. And it gets even better, Dave. The gentlemen of ladies of Berlin, whose notions of what Africans looked like and how they might behave, peered intently across a barrier at human exhibits who wore identical suits, starched white shirts, and fashionable summer dresses. These savages sat peacefully reading their Bibles or stared back at them. Some members of the Southwest African delegation could not only speak Dutch, but were also fluent in German and could converse across the fence with the organizer, with the visitors <laughs> who came to marvel at the primitive habits of their African subjects. Oh my. To the utter horror of the organizers, the dapper dress, good looks, and one presumes the conversational skills of the young African men from the Southwest began to attract attention from the women of Berlin. The 22-year-old Friedrich Maharero in particular found himself the focus of much attention and began to flirt shamelessly. 
Worse still, the women flirted back. Years after the show, when Friedrich was back in Southwest Africa, love letters from his Berlin admirers continued to arrive in the colony. They were intercepted and confiscated by the missionaries, and Friedrich never received his fan mail. Uh-huh. <laughs> so by day, the organizers struggled to maintain an air of authenticity, cajoling the human exhibits to occupy themselves making handicrafts or preparing authentic food. By night, those same Africans sat by fires, drinking and singing the German folk songs they had learned as youths. And as the temperature dropped, they slipped back into their European clothing. <laughs> so, okay. Sorry for that little uh, diversion. The Berlin show. I just thought uh, it would be a shame to let the... the no, you had to that. include that. <laughs> so now Rinderpest. Um, Rinderpest arrives in 1895. And this is a, this makes a huge difference in terms of the balance of power between the Germans and the Herero and Nama. So by 1895, herds have been reduced by 90% in some of South, South Africa. We've talked about this before. It leads to some cults and you know really self-destructive behaviors uh, we've talked about um, in South African context by 1896 they've lost half the Herero herd by 1897 it's more like 95 percent they have so many corpses that they can't burn them sometimes when they bury them it pollutes the groundwater Um, they abandon their settlements there's a series of secondary plagues from malnutrition like typhoid malaria locusts attract attack the plants they plant There's drought, many die, others go and work for the settlers, actually helping them build a network of forts and defenses while the women work in domestic service. Now, most of them return to their homes after the plague ends, but to quote the book, uh, the Rinderpest had given both the missionaries and the colonial authorities a tantalizing glimpse of how the colony might be developed if only the Herero could be induced to abandon their land altogether, sell off their cattle, and become the laboring underclass of the whites. And again, the Germans used debt to swindle a lot of Herero land in the, during the plague. Uh, that's actually the most serious long-term consequence. Now, the Herero, after the plague is over, they stop selling cattle to the Germans, which makes the Germans more angry. Um, so they start even more criminal behavior and tensions uh, rise between settlers and uh, natives, uh, native people. Um, and so the Germans in 1896 uh, are looking at this as maybe a chance to force the Herero off the land. Um, they've got, and, and at this time, there's 780 residents of Windhoek. 600 of them are soldiers, plus the fortress network has expanded in this time. Yeah. I think I mentioned earlier that relations between German settlers and, you know, neighboring Nama or Herero are not good. So I guess many of them are beginning to see the writing on the wall and it's not going over well. So it's going to lead to a string of uprisings from 1896 on. Uh, one of the first, the, uh, the Kawa... Banjeru. I'm surprised that Kawa were still able to fight at that point. Uh, that rising failed. The leaders were shot and their cattle confiscated. 12,000 cattle. That's a lot. And yeah. of course, their territory is confiscated as well. And the survivors are uh, disarmed and sent to forced labor camps. And then in 1888, 
there was the Damara uprising in 1891, the Topnar uprising in uh, 1897, uh, a tribe of Afrikaners, which is an interesting name. Yeah, yeah, no, but there's the 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 whole like there's a whole almost like a Métis thing going on here, right? Yeah, or... like the uh, simultaneous rising of the the Zwart boys. The, that's the dark boys. <laughs> and then the Baster uprising of 1900 in uh, Grootfontein. And, you know, you don't have to reach too far with your understanding of language to figure out what Baster. Actually, <laughs> yeah. some some descriptions just print bastards. <laughs> Without the two A's. Or yeah. Yeah. And the Bundelswa- the Bundelswarts, you made a note and I looked this up. I mean, it didn't look it up. It, it came up in uh, Kaiser's Holocaust. Um, he, they talk about how the, this, this one started. Um, apparently two Ger- German soldiers went to the elder, uh, you know, of the tribe and just shot him. And one of them said, now the war starts. And uh, they, I guess they didn't think of how they were going to get out of the village because the Bundelswarts promptly shot them both in turn. But then the Kaiser obviously heard this and uh, made Lutwin take uh, his troops 500 miles across difficult terrain to go and um, deal with the Bundeswehrs. And the Kaiser is a racial fanatic, uh, you know, of the, of the uh, von Francois type. Um, there's this speech we've talked about in the uh, Boxer Rebellion context mm. when he joined the Alliance, um, you know, the famous Hun speech, um, he says, you know, remember, he said this to his troops. Uh, we we mentioned this in the last episode, too. You know, if you come before the enemy, he will be defeated. No quarter will be given. Prisoners will not be taken. Whoever falls into your hands is forfeited. Just as a thousand years ago, the Huns under King Etzel made a name for themselves, one that even today makes them seem mighty in history and legend. So may the name Germany be affirmed by you in such a way in China that no Chinese will ever again dare to look sideways at a german yeah that's uh so these are the kinds of attitudes that uh, are being brought to the table um wilhelm wrote to theodore roosevelt also a important figure <laughs> the author of the winning of the west uh he wrote wilhelm wrote to roosevelt in 1905 i foresee in the future a fight for life and death between the white and yellow for their sheer existence the sooner, therefore, the nations belonging to the white race understand this and join in common defense against the coming danger, the better. Um, you know, Churchill was writing at the time that he believes in the ultimate partition of China. The Aryan stock is bound to triumph and, and all that. So. Yeah, I think we mentioned before uh, Kaiser Wilhelm and, and uh, Teddy Roosevelt got along very well. They met <laughs> in person and quite liked each other. Not surprising. They had a quite a few things in common. Although Roosevelt to me is more, um, his racism is expressed more in, in British fashion, right? Like right. you non-whites, as long as you behave yourselves and act in a civilized manner, yeah, Carlisle, uh, and, we'll, yeah. we'll let you do your thing. But, you know, if you're going to mismanage your country or step out of line, then we're going to come in and know fix things obviously put the boots to you and and so on the german variant and we've talked about this a bit outside the context of this episode the german 
variant on this approach is really different. Um, shocking sometimes even. Um, there's, there's so little pretense about how, you know, we're doing this for the good of these people. We're going to civilize them. Um, that, you know, I mean, the British can totally destroy a village in the name of civilizing it, you know, something that we'll, we'll see in later colonial wars. The Germans just have a different. <laughs> yeah. It's like they, it's like they have like a, like a truth spell on them or something. Like they just can't well, tell a lie. They yeah. Can't... Yeah. I mean, they have the same obviously racist attitude and they're just more blatant about it. But I, I just mean in the, in their resort to force, yeah, it's the first. It's the first resort. It's the, it's the first option. Yeah, brute force and and emphasis on the the brutality of it. So I I go back to uh, Bismarck in 18, 1848 or forty nine when that revolution was going on. Right, and he managed to pull off a really unconstitutional move to get funds for the king of Prussia to expand his army. He basically sent guys door to door to collect money directly for the king. And and quite a few people were you know, perfectly happy to give their money directly. And then Bismarck used that to expand the army. So of course, the parliament went nuts. You can't do that. And his answer was, well, I did. And, and then they screamed, this is, you know, unconstitutional. The other uh, states in Germany, Germany was not unified in 1848, the other states in Germany, you know, they admire us for our constitution and you've just ruined our reputation. And Bismarck made a famous speech. He said, don't talk to me about, you know, constitutions and majority votes, right? That's not how things are done. He said, they don't respect us for our constitution. They respect us for die Macht. And the translation for the German word Macht is might, as in mighty, as in might makes right. And there's a tendency in all of these stories about, you know, German colonialism and imperialism, where the first thing they think of is force. Even before they've landed, you know, they've made these Peters and uh, Lutwein and these guys from their readings of, you know, about British colonialism, they've already decided, like, I'm going to shoot first and I hope then I won't have to ask questions. Yeah. No, it's, uh, yeah, there, there are these, you know, when we did France, we talked about these nuances and this is definitely one of them where yeah. it's particularly... Direct. Unfortunately, their their strategy in Namibia was working. The divide and conquer was finally starting to pay dividends. Even Hendrik Witboy yeah. decided to give the Germans military support against other smaller tribes, such as the uh, Mbanderu Herero, the Afrikaners, and the Svartboys. And yeah, I'm kind of disappointed by that, to tell you the truth. <laughs> yeah, he also uh, made quite a bit of money selling land to German settlers, uh, including one Dr. Kampfer, whose son became a celebrated writer of colonial fiction under the Nazis. Um, Kampfer named the farm that uh, he bought uh, Deutsche Erde, uh, German or Earth or German soil. Hmm. Um, so then we have, now we, I guess we're ready for the Herero uprising. Yeah. 
so Lutwein is building rail uh, railways. There's a railway between Windhoek and the the port of Swakopmund. Uh, in 1903, there's another railroad from Swakopman to the Otavi copper mine, which is the only mine of consequence in the in Southwest African colony. Um, they've they've put one of the uh, with, they've they've basically jammed uh, Whitboy uh, some of the Whitboy onto a reserve in Rietmont and another reserve in uh, Otimbingwe. So they're following the Canada. A model of trying to get everybody, all the native people, onto reserves. Um, and in 1903, they approached the Herero about um, another putting another group of them onto a reserve near Okahanja, and the Herero say no. Um, but still, they're not that worried. Um, they've still got most of their land. Only 10% of their land has been purchased, even through the Rinderpest plague. They have 50,000 cattle. The Nama have 25,000 cattle. And the Germans just can't stand this. They don't like um, living among Africans that have this kind of independence. Their settlers get together and they write a letter to the Reichstag saying, well, Africans are lazy and brutal and stupid. And they're hanging out in bars in Windhoek and just whipping themselves into more and more racist frenzy. Ludwig has kind of a contempt for this. He says these... Settlers are acting like a conquering army, even though we have conquered nothing. Um, but from this period, 1902 to 1904, there's a whole bunch of just brutal colonial violence by settlers, kind of grassroots violence uh, against Africans. They're flogging Herero elders. They're raping and murdering Herero women. Um, sometimes these white people are punished by minor fines, but for the most part, uh, not. They are, like you said, um, African scouts and others uh, that are that are made to render assistance to the so-called Schutztruppe under the treaties, but they're not, unlike the French and or the English, they don't recruit them formally into the military structure. So the Schutztruppe is a white man's army, uh, in the words of the authors of Kaiser's Holocaust. It's a hothouse of ultra-nationalism and racial fanaticism, also very undisciplined. So in 1904, the railway station, uh, the railway is connected between the Okahanja, where they, which the Germans want to turn into a reserve, and Windhoek, the kind of settler capital, which is 50 miles away. Windhoek has a settler core and then a Herero section in the outlands. The Herero section uh, outside of Windhoek proper includes Samuel Maharero's villa, and they keep the holy fire there as well. So this is where um, the war kind of starts. Um, in there's a Lieutenant Zern who's a particularly nasty racialist. Um, he forges a bunch of treaties, claims that the land is Germany's. Um, he exhumes skulls from Herero graves, sells them to race scientists in Germany for extra income. Oh and God. he gets a tip, a hot tip from a Boer trader named Alex Neat that the uh, that the Herero are getting ready to attack uh, Okahanja. And so he leads a 24-hour watch for two days. He sends a telegram uh, to Windhoek saying that an attack is already underway uh, based on this tip. So he's, he's, you know, he's not trying to calm things down, let's just say. Um, so the book says it is not known who fired the first shot, but uh, settlers and Herrero basically start shooting each other. 
um, uh, the Terrero uh, win an early victory. They te- tear up the railway track to Windhoek. Um, and one of the missionaries, Philip Deal, he has his mission, the mission in uh, Okahanja shot up. Uh, he figures it came from the German side. <laughs> Yeah, this is this is the worst nightmare for, you know, uh, settler farmers. If they don't live in the fort at Windhoek, they're you know remote farms are going to be attacked. Uh, and apparently, approximately 150 German settlers were killed. Yeah. But what's interesting is it wasn't indiscriminate. It seems like the Herero knew exactly who they were going after. Yeah. Uh, so he, uh, <laughs> the book says, uh, settlers were killed in their beds on occasion by their own Herero servants. Men who had murdered or raped Herero, whom the German authorities had failed to punish, were hunted down. Traders who had extorted cattle and exaggerated debts were also killed. The Herero seized, at times seized back, large numbers of cattle from the traders and the settlers. Yeah. So. Yeah. And the Schutztruppe, uh, they had 766 troops um at first they're no match for the herero and and the herero went on the the offensive sometimes they even surrounded windhoek and they destroyed the railway bridge to osona this is the work of chief samuel maharero yeah and he's trying to uh negotiate he's always trying to negotiate so repeated uh, after every victory they win he writes to lutvin and he says listen this is not for example one letter he says in march 1904 this is not my war. This is that of Zern, Lieutenant Zern. In June 1904, Zern is relieved of command, um, and uh, he's sent back to Germany. He makes sure he brings another looted skull uh, home with him. Um, in an open letter, Maharero accepted that the war could now not be stopped and set down the rules by which the Herero would fight. He specifically forbade violence against women and children. Apart from a few incidents in the early chaotic days of the conflict, the edict was obeyed. While German men were attacked and killed, only four women and one child were killed during the whole course of the war. They also target Germans, not English, not Boers, and not Nama. So, yeah. He wrote to uh, Hendrik Witboy as well. And, yeah. and Maharero was trying to you know, organize his rebellion and simultaneously build alliances with the other tribes. And his, his motto seems to have been, let us die fighting. Yeah. Unfortunately, and this is, you know, the part that, that hurt. it just yeah. hurts. You remember Witboy writing to yeah, Maharero's to father, father yeah. saying, don't ally with the Germans. Well, yeah. now it's the son fighting the Germans and Witboy supported them, the Germans. <sighs> until 1904 so their rivalries nama herero rivalries just seemed more on more important attractable yeah meanwhile according to uh, strandman the germans had hoped to avoid a large uprising like this they were content to you know nibble away but you know now that it came it wasn't entirely unwelcome there were some who said, well, now we can properly conquer the territory, expropriate the Herero completely and, you know, turn them into laborers. Right. So the Germans, uh, you know, the Herero, Maharero let, l- l- lays down some pretty strict rules for 
for how the Herero are going to conduct the war, the Germans uh, don't follow the same <laughs> rules. Uh, Herero working for German, this is from the book, uh, Herero working for German companies or farmers were arrested and imprisoned. There were cases of lynching and isolated Herero communities who did not take part in the rising and even declared their loyalty to the Kaiser were nonetheless attacked. Photographs taken by settlers in early 1904 depict the beaten bodies of Herero men hanging from trees. In late January, three gallows were erected on a hilltop in Windhoek, and the execution of captured Herero became a regular public spectacle. The corpses of hanged rebels were left for days as a warning to others. One German writes, uh, wrote in a Cape Town newspaper, We have commenced to hang these black rascals instead of shooting them, and I can assure you we hang them nicely. There's also a lot of uh, so-called atrocity propaganda going around, uh, quoting from the book, most of it exaggerated, some of it entirely fabricated, claiming that a number of German children had been killed, that white women had been raped, and that some of the male settlers who had been killed had their noses and testicles cut off. To amplify the impact of these stories, artists produced fantastic illustrations. So one example, one engraving showed a gang of marauding Herero holding down a defenseless German woman in a white dress. As the artist had no knowledge of life in Southwest Africa, he depicted the Herero wearing the overalls and hats common among black sharecroppers in the deep south of the United States. So it's all in there. A lot, a lot is going on in their imaginations here. Um, the German so colonial society says Europeans can assert themselves only by maintaining the supremacy of their race at all costs. Uh, like you were saying, it's not entirely unwelcome. The German army hasn't had a glorious fight and since the 1870s when they fought with France, right? So citizens write, uh, one citizen wrote an open letter to the Kaiser suggesting that they poison Herrero water supplies. He says, after all, we are not fighting against an enemy respecting the rules of fairness, but against savages. Never must we allow the N-word to prevail. The consequences of such a victory would be dire indeed, since even now the Africans belong that Africa be believe that Africa belongs to them rather than to the Lord above. Talk about taking the Lord's name uh, in vain. In February 1904, Wilhelm puts the Herero War under the command of General Alfred von Schlieffen. <laughs> Schlieffen has a plan. Uh, wah, wah, wah. Um, so Schlieffen starts uh, beginning a drive to assemble the largest colonial army ever assembled by Germany. One of the people assembled in this assembly is uh, Lieutenant Franz Xavier von Epp, who also becomes a Nazi later on. Oh my, that Epp? That same guy. Same Freikor, guy. The Freikorps yeah. von Oh my God. Yeah. So he keeps a diary. He says the world is being divided with time we will inevitably need more space. Only the, by the sword will we be able to get it. It will be up to our generation to achieve this. It is a matter of our existence. There's also a Captain Maximilian Bayer, B-A-Y-E-R, which is like the same name as the Aspirin and company that owns Monsanto and stuff. I, don't, I wasn't able to find a connection. I desperately <laughs> looked oh, to see okay. whether it's... He's from that family. I couldn't, I couldn't find any connection. But Bear says, Our Lord has made the laws of nature so that only the strong have a right to continue to exist in the world so that the weak and purposeless will perish in favor of the strong. Uh, he knows apparently what the Lord <laughs> has yeah, made. Yeah, they, they speak very clearly. <laughs> he has access to the Lord. Uh, 
He said, he continues, this process is played out in a variety of ways. For example, the end of the American Indians. Uh, <laughs> still here. <laughs> uh, anyway, because they were without purpose in the continued development of a world that is striving towards a higher level of civilization. In the same way, the day will come when the Hottentot, which is the name for Nama, will perish. It will not be any loss for humanity because they are, after all, only born thieves and robbers, nothing more. When uh, von Epp lands uh, in March 1904, along with 2,000 more troops, um, von Epp hears that the Herero have the same Mauser rifles that his men have. And he says, the black swine know how to use them too. So he's very incensed by this. I, I just checked. It is the same von Epp. He's got quite a career. Yeah, Boxer Rebellion as a volunteer. <laughs> Nama uh, and Herero genocides in Namibia. And then uh, I guess he was in the Bavarian unit of the army, uh, World War One, And probably most famous for crushing the communist, short-lived communist republic in, in Munich, in Bavaria, after yeah. World War One, And then setting up... The Freikorps. One of his uh, one of his underlings was Ernst Röhm. Oh, founder of the Brown Shirts. Look at that. Yep. Connections. Connections. So Samuel Maharero, he has four thousand men. He withdraws to the Okanjira Mountains, which is two days' march from Okahanja. Ludwig wants to open negotiations, but the Kaiser Wilhelm says no. Schlieffen orders him to march on Herero land and, and get it done. Uh, Ludwig writes back to the colonial department, kind of protesting. He says, I do not concur with those fanatics who want to see the Herero destroyed altogether. Uh, and here's why, Dave. It's, it's a real gem of a guy, this Ludwig. He says, apart from the fact that a people of 60,000 or 70,000 are not so easily annihilated, I consider it a bad mistake from an economic point of view. <laughs> I don't object to shooting that many people, but <laughs> bad for business. Yeah. yeah. Not easy to do. So Ludwig takes uh in April seventh, uh, nineteen oh four, he takes eight hundred men from Okahanja. He's got a hundred African scouts, fifty Witboy, um, Nama, based on the eighteen ninety four treaty. Samuel's Maharero's got four thousand men at arms and three thirty thousand civilians gathered at their encampment. So he's basically gathering everybody there. Um, they uh, they held in their trenches, uh, but again, the artillery is m impossible for them to deal with. They have no answer, so they have to evacuate. By the time the Germans get there, though, Samuel and everybody is gone. So they're pretty unhappy with the result. On April 11th, Lutwein tracks the Herero to a watering hole at Oviumbo, uh, where Samuel Maharero ambushes him. Um, and, and it's a pretty well-planned ambush. Uh, 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 Maharero knows that the Germans use red flags to prevent their units from uh, shooting each other. So the Herero make, <laughs> Herero make red flags too. And so the Germans have no idea where the fire is coming from or who's where or what. Um, Lutwein finally waits until nightfall and retreats. Uh, which really angers uh, the German general staff. Um, but he protests again and says, look, by ordering the night march from Oviumbo, I saved the military force from disaster. Kaiser Wilhelm is not convinced. He relieves 
Theodore Ludwig of his military command. He's still the governor of the colony, but he relieves him of his military command in May 9th. Yeah, and he sends 15,000 troops Wow. with a new commander, Lothar von Trotha. And if you've heard the name before, it's that guy. The one who fought against the Wahehe Rebellion in German East Africa and ruthlessly suppressed it and then commanded a brigade in China suppressing the Boxer Rebellion. This guy's got plenty of uh, experience. And you know, it just amazes me. (laughs) Okay, so they fire a guy and replace him, and they fire another guy and replace him. But it's the same type of guy each time. (laughs) I think that might have been the only kind of guy they had. Isn't Yeah, isn't that the possibility, right? That... Oh, man. I mean, Ludwig, you know, I, 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 he's no gem, but I do feel for him. He's Well, our, our experience with, with the British, you know, a- approach to this problem. Okay, you can see a guy getting fired for not being energetic enough. Or he's, he's too nice. He's trying to negotiate with the natives. We want, you know, a more military solution. So you relieve him. And then you got the other extreme, the guy who's just... Okay, he's killing too many people. Yeah. Got to rein him in and and you know relieve him and send in someone who's a little more moderate. But but it seems like the Germans only have one kind of guy. Uh, one note, yeah. So quoting Kaiser's Holocaust during the Wahehe uprising, von Trotha had unflinchingly ordered mass hangings and the summary executions of prisoners of war. He had burned down entire villages, sometimes with their inhabitants still inside. Von Trotha's treatment of the local peoples was so extreme that it even drew opposition from Hermann Wismann, the governor of German East Africa. Wismann had served alongside Kurt von Francois in the Belgian Congo in 1880s and had a reputation for cruelty and violence. Yet when he heard of von Trotha's appointment to Southwest Africa, he warned the colonial department that von Trotha was a bad leader and a bad comrade. Oh, okay, so I'm wrong. They do have different levels of... So one of Von Trotha's soldiers wrote that he was a human shark, the most bloodthirsty animal in Wilhelm's war arsenal. Now, Von Trotha's own words, I know enough tribes in Africa. They all have the same mentality insofar as they yield only to force. It was and remains my policy to apply this force by absolute terrorism and even cruelty i shall destroy the rebellious tribes by shedding rivers of blood and money only then will it be possible to sow the seeds of something new that will endure nice (laughs) i mean okay so he lands june 1904 june 11th he goes straight into a meeting with lutvin and uh, he's not happy with Ludwig. He declares martial law, which gives himself supreme command. And by from now until November 1905, uh, the colony is to be run as a military dictatorship. He answers only to the Kaiser, not to the colonial department or the Reichstag like Ludwig does. Chancellor von Bülow uh, can no longer control von Trotha. Um, and he, you know, we've heard about like Ubermensch and Untermensch, but... Uh, what von Trotha calls the Herero is Unmenschen, which means non-humans. They're not unpeople, right? Wow. 
So Samuel Maharero now, he's got 50,000 people, tens of thousands of cattle at this place called the Waterberg, which is like a very significant place for them in many ways. Um, and they're just debating, him and his leadership is just debating, what do we do here? We can negotiate, we can try to give battle, we can try to cross. So there's a group that's saying if we can hold off, it's June now, they have six months, if they can hold off until December, uh, they can cross the Omaheke Desert and try to get refuge in Bechuana land, aka British-controlled Botswana. But they need to wait until December for the rains. If they try to cross the desert in the dry season, they might as well just commit suicide because yeah. there's no water. So here's the thing. They don't understand von Trotha. They can't, how could they understand von Trotha? Who can understand von Trotha? But they don't understand von Trotha because von Trotha doesn't want to let them flee. He wants uh, a genocide. So he follows uh, the... Uh, concentric deployment concept of their most famous uh military thinker at the time helmuth von moltke oh yeah the double envelopment god so they love that his plan is to encircle the herero masses around waterberg and to annihilate them with an instantaneous blow uh he has more men uh samuel uh, he has more troops there's more troops now in the colony than settlers to defend um, he's got 585 million marks from Germany for this mission, 110 million of which were contributed by the colony. So in August 1904, he begins to assemble around the Waterberg and gives orders to avoid alarming or provoking the Herero so that they don't disperse and slip the trap. One soldier writes uh, in his diary, we have been lying here for some time now. We will be here until the mouse trap closes if the Herero do us the favor of not escaping. One of the nephews, uh, the nephew Tilo von Trotha, he ends up in a little skirmish with some Herero and shoots 70 Herero. Uh, and the uncle von Trotha says, don't do it. Such actions have to be avoided if the aim of the war, annihilation of the whole lot, is to be achieved. So the authors of Kaiser's Holocaust at this point say, why did Maharero let himself be surrounded? It was too soon to contemplate crossing the desert. Um, but it's clear that he still hoped he could negotiate. He just didn't, un he figured a, a battle would be pretty inconclusive. He's got the numbers, they've got the artillery, but he, you know, he's shown that he can keep fighting them. Well, he's got tens of thousands of civilians to protect. Um, he's got tens of thousands of civilians to protect, and they've been making overtures. He figures we can negotiate something, right? Even if it's even if it's going to be bad terms, um, whatever. Like he can negotiate something. So uh, that's probably why he just was patient in a way that you know didn't pay off to say the least. Um, August, August 4th, Von Trotha issues his directives for the attack on the Herero. C the plan is basically contain them, bombard them with artillery and machine gun anyone who comes close enough to try to break through. August 10th, they come out of their planning meeting and pose for a photo. <laughs> oh, yeah. Von Trotha and his commanders. And then on the 11th, uh, Von Trotha attacks. So here's some quotes. Throughout the day, Wave after wave of Herero fighters struggled to break the stranglehold. Those carrying guns formed lines of attack, and when they fell, 
A new line of fighters would take the rifles of the dead and launch a fresh assault. Behind the fighting men, the women collected the dead and tended the wounded as best they could. Uh, By 3 p.m., the Herero overran the southeast flank and broke through, but the only way they could go was towards the desert. So uh, eventually, Chancellor uh, German Chancellor Bülow came to believe that that was von Trotha's plan all along. Um, von Trotha orders the entire, you know, Herero population pursued. He follows them for two weeks into the desert, and then he figures they have no chance anyway. Um, one of the majors, Stuhlman, he writes, we had been explicitly told beforehand that what we were dealing with was the extermination of the whole tribe. Nothing living was to be spared. Yeah, Trotha had ordered his troops to poison water holes. They had guard posts along like an incredibly long perimeter, like 150 mile line. And they had orders to shoot any Herrera on site. And then there's the the proclamation he made uh, to the Herreros. I, the great general of the German soldiers, send this letter to the Herreros. The Herreros are German subjects no longer. They have killed, stolen, cut off the ears and other parts of the body of wounded soldiers, and now are too cowardly to want to fight any longer. I announce to the people that whoever hands me one of the chiefs shall receive a thousand marks and five thousand marks for Samuel Maherero. The Herero nation must now leave the country. If it refuses, I shall compel it to do so with the long tube cannon. Any Herero found inside the German frontier, with or without a gun or cattle, will be executed. I shall spare neither women nor children. I shall give the order to drive them away and fire on them. Such are my words to the Herero people. So he had the proclamation read to the troops at roll call, uh, adding that any unit that catches a captain would receive the appropriate reward, uh, and that the shooting at women and children is to be understood as shooting above their heads to force them to run away. Uh, There's a line in it, I assume absolutely that this proclamation will result in taking no more male prisoners but will not degenerate into atrocities against women and children. The latter will run away if one shoots at them a couple of times. The troops will remain conscious of the good reputation of the German soldier. Mm. Right. So we're not going to shoot the women and children. We're just going to drive them into the desert so they can die there. Yeah. That's how you protect your reputation. Um, after reading this proclamation, von Trotha did a what von Epp called, who was there, a theatrical hanging of some uh, Herero prisoners. He uh, folds up copies of the proclamation and hangs them around the necks of old men, women, and children uh, who are then drove, driven into the desert by gunfire. Um, so there's a copy of the extermination order in the Botswana National Archives. Um, the authors comment that It is an almost unique document, an explicit written declaration of intent to commit genocide. Uh, Von Trotha's own report to the general staff uh, is kind of smug. He says, this uprising is and remains the beginning of a racial struggle, which I foresaw as early as 1897 in my reports to the imperial chancellor. Yeah, he also wrote to Schlieffen, who was the chief of the general staff at the time. (laughs) And we've seen you know, the man on the spot thing where, you know, people are are doing something that the government at home is not going to be pleased with. 
if and when they find out. But Schlieffen read Trotha's report and said, he wants to exterminate the whole nation or drive it out of the country. In this, we can only agree with him. Once <laughs> racial war breaks out, it can only finish with the annihilation of one of the parties. Oh, God, these people. <laughs> um, so in the German official history of the Battle of Waterberg, uh, it goes like this. The hasty exit of the Herero to the southeast into the waterless Omaheke would seal his fate. The environment of his own country was to bring about his extermination in a way that no German weapon, even in a most bloody or deadly battle ever could. Their death rattle and furious cry of insanity echoed in the exalted silence of eternity. The Herero indictment had come to an end, and they had ceased to exist as an independent people. So yeah, the consistency of the messaging is impressive, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So civilians who didn't go into the desert, of whom there were thousands of people, um, Wilhelm Lorang describes the order for them was to shoot, kill, hang, whatever you liked, old or young, men, women, or children. So the Germans uh, conduct what are called cleansing patrols over an area of 100,000 square miles. They're killing Herero, they're killing Damara, they're killing Ovambo, they're killing San. Uh, They would meet people, they would gather them together, tell them we want to talk or whatever, and then ambush them, open fire them on them and bayonet the wounded across Herero land. Bands of Herero were tricked into believing it was safe to return from the bush and then killed. October 23, Lutvin writes to the colonial department saying uh, the Herero are asking for negotiations. Uh, Von Trotha says, listen, there's no way you can stop what I've started. He says the eastern border of the colony will remain sealed off and terrorism will be employed against the Herero showing up. That nation must vanish from the face of the earth. Having failed to destroy them with guns, I will have to achieve my end in that way. Ludwig basically realizes there's no place for him or his ideas, so he sort of resigns. Um, in the book, The Kaiser's Holocaust, they kind of contrast Ludwig and von Trotha as like pa- paternalistic racism of Ludwig versus biological racism of von Trotha, who believes in this great race war, right? So November by November, though, uh, 1904, November 23rd, Schlieffen basically admits that they've failed to exterminate uh, the Herero completely. Um, he writes to von Bülow that while von Trotha's intentions are commendable, he is powerless to carry them off. <laughs> commendable <laughs> intentions. Yeah. Uh, Bülow's pretty upset about it all. He says this is going to demolish Germany's reputation among civilized nations and indulge foreign agitation. But Wilhelm thinks it's vigor. He applauds von Trotha for his vigorous action. He tells him, you have entirely fulfilled my expectations when I named you commander of the colonial troops, and I take pleasure in expressing once again my utter gratitude for your accomplishments so far. Nice. Bulo, what's that? Nice. Yeah. So Bulo, though, is is going to insist. He, he's going to insist that this extermination order be rescinded. Uh, Wilhelm, I think he knows that he's going to lose this one eventually, so instead of replying, he goes on a five-day hunting trip with his friends. Uh, I guess this was one of the tactics to <laughs> of, to delay. Um, but eventually he comes back and he gives a kind of mealy-mouthed order to Von Trotha to treat the Herero who voluntarily surrender uh, mercifully. 
Von Troth is pretty upset by this telegram, and he says, look, I'll resign if you don't like what I'm doing here. And Schlieffen tries to placate him. He says, listen, his majesty has not forbidden you to shoot the Herreros. Just the possibility of showing mercy is to be restored. So let's split the difference, right? Um, Wilhelm sends his own rapporteur, uh, an aristocrat uh, and a lieutenant, to report on what to do about the Herero. And so he comes back on December 12th with a 55-page report, apparently handwritten in beautiful calligraphy, where he advocates disarming the Herero and killing all their leaders. Uh, All chiefs should be executed and their families, even if they are innocent, should be deported to another colony so they will never again gain influence among their people. All natives from the warring tribes, apart from the those who work for the government, should be leased out in large or small numbers to private persons, farmers and merchants, and so forth. Here they should perform labor for food. He also recommends a brass identification tag and a pass system uh, to confine uh, and confined areas. So the Spanish in Cuba, the Americans in the Philippines, the Boers, uh, you know, the British in the Boer War, basically a concentration camp model uh the the authors of kaiser's holocaust point out that this is a bit strange since at least in cuba philippines and the boer war there was some kind of war happening uh he's advocating concentration camps uh after the war is over there's no guerrilla struggle nothing um and but von bulow likes these ideas uh because it's not extermination anymore it's just like slavery and you know killing all the leaders and so on so this, uh, these proposals are sent to Von Trotha to build up these concentrations lager, the concentration camps. Um, Bulow um, writes to Von Trotha and says, surrendering Herrero should be put under guard and required to work. Von Trotha says, fine, but the cleansing patrols take precedence. And uh, here's how it's looking in March 1905. Uh, in 1905, uh, the Herero emerged like ghosts from the Omaheke and the distant corners of Herero land. They dragged themselves into the German towns of Omaruru, Karibib, Windhoek, and Okahanja. Most were women and children. All were in an appalling state of advanced malnutrition. Um, one missionary said that they were mere skillet- skeletons covered by a thin film of skin. Uh, one of the German uh, town, you know, colonial officials in the town, he expressed concern about these people. And then he was kind of mobbed by uh, by the settlers and had to apologize publicly for expressing concern. Oh, boy. Well, the survivors ended up in concentration camps and were used as forced labor. And many more of them died of malnutrition, disease, overwork. Yeah, there's some details about the camps. Uh, Windhoek was, there were five camps. One in Windhoek, which had capacity for 7,000 prisoners. Karibib and Okahanja were basically farming operations, and then Swakopmund and Luderitz were ports. So there were work death camps uh, in these five places. Most of the records were destroyed deliberately in 1915 when the Germans realized they were going to lose these colonies. But there is considerable documentation uh, for one camp, Swakopmund, uh, because of one of the doctors there, Dr. Fuchs, and a missionary, Heinrich Vetter, who both left uh, some records. So Vetter's letters explain what the camp looked like, barbed wire, deliberate starvation. Here's a quote from him. Like cattle, hundreds were driven to death, and like cattle, they were buried. 
von Trotha ordered rations uh, kept to the absolute minimum. So 500 grams of either rice or flour per day for men, half of that for women and children. And it's rice or flour. There's no pots or pans to cook it in. So they're just uh, expected to eat uh, flour with no water or, or anything to cook with. Um, the, their clothing, um, they're given basically what's called a Hessian sack. It's like a, a sack with holes for the sleeves um, for the arms. Uh, there's no sanitation, so people are dying from exposure. Von Trotha doesn't like the brass tags and proposes some kind of branding or tattooing uh, for the prisoners. Wow. Um, he also introduces formal regulations for the renting out of prisoners. Um, <laughs> uh, there's rules against exporting servants, but one of these uh, German noblemen tries to export his, I guess he took a liking to one of his servants and tries to export him. Um, he gets in trouble, but the Kaiser signs an acquittal for him. Uh, over four months, if you're at this camp, you're, you have 40% mortality. Uh, rate and then after 10 months it's pretty much a hundred percent so nobody survives more than 10 months in Swakopmund. Uh, Dr. Fuchs visits the camp in May uh, 1905 he says about 10 percent of the camp died in the last two weeks of May he says it is necessary to provide the prisoners with accommodation that is sheltered from the wind properly ventilated rooms warm clothes co coats trousers blankets and shoes some variation in the food, uh, rice, flour, where possible, some meat, onions, or lard, as well as medical attention. Von Trotha and the governor, Tecklenburg, are like, uh, yeah, no, I don't think so. Um, Von Te uh, governor Tecklenburg says, the more that the Herero people now feel the consequences of the uprising on their own bodies, the less the coming generations will feel inclined to rebel. That's an interesting theory. Um, sure, the death of so many natives has a negative commercial impact, but the natural life force of the Herreros will soon allow them to recover their numbers. The future generations, which could possibly be mixed a bit with Damara blood, would thus have been bottle-fed with an understanding of their inferiority to the white race. So, pretty weird kind of magical biological beliefs here. Um, there's a death register for Swakopmund Camp in the National Archives of Namibia. Uh, it's called the Totten Register for 1905 to 1908. Um, and here's the final quote from Kaiser's Holocaust about this genocide that I'll leave you with before we pick up in the next episode about the Nama genocide. Uh, it goes like this. The pages of the Swakopmund Totten Register are divided into columns in which the military clerk or camp officer entered the names, genders, and ages of deceased prisoners. However, officiating clerks had no need to enter details in the column indicating the cause of death. That came pre-printed, death through exhaustion, bronchitis, heart disease, or scurvy. Wow. So. I mentioned that prior to the uprisings, there were an estimated 80,000 Herero. The 1911 census records show 15,000. Yeah. Uh, unsurprisingly, Trotha defended his policies uh, later in life. It was and is my policy to use force with terrorism and even brutality. And for his efforts, 
he was awarded the Pour le Mérite for his services in Africa. If you're not familiar with this, the Pour le Mérite is a medal. It was introduced by Frederick the Great in 1740. That's why a German medal has a French name. Frederick <laughs> hated German and spoke and wrote in French. Uh, it eventually became pretty much the highest award for you know bravery, valor, service um, in the German army. And Trotha got one. Oh, that's chilling. <sighs> What to say? <laughs> you know what's even more chilling? Uh, I, I was thinking I wasn't going to do it, but there, there's just too much that too much. makes you think of, you know, later history. It's all here. It's all here. Race war. You know, war of annihilation. Concentrationslager. Uh, yeah. You know, the barbed wire and, and the tattooing. Oh, yeah. and and the uh, the death register. Yep. You know the the meticulous keeping of records of how many people you starve to death while yeah. exploiting their labor. Yeah. It's amazing. Hit, and Hit, it, Hitler it, was born in 1889. Right. So as this is going on, he's uh what? Teenager. 16. Yeah. Uh, but you know, so much of the language remains the same. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is why like when Aimé Césaire or, um, I guess it was mainly Césaire who was saying CLR James, maybe Du Bois, but like these black writers were saying that a lot of what Hitler was doing was, uh, you know, what they did in Africa um, but they're doing it in Europe. And it's like, I, I always thought that was, I, I had always read that as a little bit more metaphorical than, uh, no. than it turns out to be. It's actually the same people doing it as well. Yeah. Um, and literally the same terminology. Yeah. The same terminology. So there's a, there's a thing we'll have to talk about at the end when, you know, we're, we'll do the Nama genocide next, but there's a thing we'll have to talk about, which is like, how how much were you know germany how how different were these from each other um and i think uh there's one of the one of the one of our listeners uh named sean um he sent me an, an article called delegitimating empire german and british representations of colonial violence 1918 to 19 so apparently the british compiled something called the blue book which describes which where the British make a case for why the Germans should are not fit to have colonies based on the horrific things they did. And the Germans tried to answer with what they call the white book, uh, basically saying this is what colonialism involves. Uh, you know, if you want colonies, this is how it's going to be. So don't pick on us. So I kind of want to I kind of want to take a look at these uh, and say, you know, who's right here. Um, my inclination, of course, is a plague on both their houses, but uh, yeah. there may be more more to it than that. Well, that's in the context of the Treaty of Versailles, right? Exactly. So we're exactly. going to take all Germany's colonies away, yeah. and we're going to try to justify it on moral grounds. On humanitarian grounds. Yeah. yeah. 
But uh, before we get to that, we have to talk about another genocide. So.